0: I'm Damian Willis, and this is the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're joined by Las Cruces native Aaron Paz, who works for NASA. Aaron is a NASA senior engineer and carbothermal reduction demonstration project manager at johnson space center in houston as nasa works toward sending astronauts to the moon again through artemis missions one of the space agency's primary goals is to establish a long-term presence on the lunar surface resources like oxygen are crucial building blocks for making that vision a reality In addition to using oxygen for breathing, it can also be used as a propellant for transportation, helping lunar visitors stay longer and venture farther. During a recent test, scientists at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston successfully extracted oxygen from simulated lunar soil. Lunar soil refers to the fine-grained material covering the moon's surface. This was the first time that this extraction had been done in a vacuum environment, paving the way for astronauts to one day extract and use resources in a lunar environment. And (laughs) I'm not going to lie, I don't fully understand all of this. The ramifications, what it could mean for future space travel and living someplace that is not on Earth, maybe even in our lifetimes. But that's why I'm grateful to have Aaron joining us today. Aaron, thanks for making time to visit with us today and share your story.
1: Sure, appreciate the opportunity.
0: I want to start at the beginning. Tell me about how. Uh, tell me a little bit about your time growing up in Las Cruces.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, I was born and raised in Las Cruces, New Mexico. My um, both of my parents are for, uh, from Las Cruces. All four of my grandparents. Um, so, I actually have pretty deep deep roots in the area. And um, I think uh, I'd say my experience growing up there was probably pretty similar to a lot of folks just you know enjoying the uh natural beauty and the and the food that uh, uh you know makes that area a really nice place to live
0: it's um, it's hard to talk about Cruces and not talk about the mountains and the food oh i love it yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and i mean it's it's still home to me and i and by the way green chili did make its way to houston and i make a point to uh they, they have Chili Rosa H-E-B here, which is the big chain grocery store. So I, yay uh, every August will load up my freezer full of green chili. So I have it for the rest of the year. That's something I brought with me, <laughs>
0: a, that habit. Um, where'd you go to school?
1: So uh, I went to, uh, well, let's see, Masia Park Elementary, uh, Zia Middle School, Mayfield High School. And um, yeah, I'd say I'd say my path to NASA really started there. I mean, I think I had a lot of help along the way. Um. Uh, you know, of course, starting with my parents, they uh, they always encouraged me to uh, to value education. Um, like, it, not going to college was not an option. Like, I knew I was going to be going to college since I was a kid. They, my, my parents are both educators. My dad was a guidance counselor at Mayfield, and uh, my mom was a principal of Las Cruces High School. Um, and, uh, you know, so they, they, they kind of nudged me in the right direction. um you know, I think my dad uh, was he was also my guidance counselor when I went to Mayfield High School. And so he saw that I had a, a knack for mechanical things and encouraged me to join uh, MESA, which was the, the mathematics, engineering, science achievement program. Um, and that was really where I started. I think it was it was in that program that uh, I was able to. um you know, I participated all four years of of high school. And at the end, the way that program works is you get to take a senior field trip. So I actually got to go to uh, Kennedy space center and shadow a NASA engineer for a day. And, um, after that I was hooked. Like once I saw what a, you know, a a day-to-day, you know, what it's like to work for NASA on a day-to-day basis. Uh, that was pretty much, um, what I knew I wanted to do. And, pretty much spent all of college, you know, focused on looking for opportunities and ways to get into NASA. Um, So I think, um, yeah, that was, that was a big part of it. And um, you know, one of the other things my dad did, I think that kind of helped me out was uh, he gave me a, one of his old cars uh, to fix up when I was in high school. So his old Camaro was my first car. And it was a 76 Camaro that it had been sitting in a yard for, you know, several years, but, uh, he basically said, if I got it running again, that I can have it. So I was, you know, as a high school, I was like all about that. So it, it was really fun to actually, you know, I got a job after school at Casa Luna restaurant um, and use all that money to build up the car. So that was kind of my introduction to like hands-on mechanical stuff. And that was really what made me want to become a mechanical engineer and kind of have that be my focus. And so, yeah, that was another big part of I think my path here and and then you know the, another big part of it too was just that the, the state of New Mexico I think does a good job with the scholarship opportunities with the, um, the lottery scholarship I took advantage of that um, so you know, I, you know that program went away for a while I think they're bringing it back but when, when I graduated from high school they you know had this policy where if you had good grades good ACT score and you went to an in-state college that they would pay your tuition for as long as you keep your grades up while you're in college. So it's basically a full scholarship to New Mexico state university. I chose NMSU because at the time I think they had the you know, a better engineering school. Um, right. And, you know, uh, I mean, they really did have, and still do, I think have a really good engineering school. There's actually a lot of folks here at NASA that are NMSU graduates. And uh, yeah, I think from there it was um, <clears throat> like I said, my, my focus once I got to college was trying to look for ways to get to NASA. So, I got in touch with the co-op office at NMSU within my first couple of years, and uh, when I saw there was an opportunity to apply at the White Sands test facility, that was basically how I got in. Um, so I was able to um, get my first internship at White Sands, and that was really an, an awesome, amazing experience. I mean, they uh, you know—I I started working on uh, h- hardware for the space shuttle, you know, right away. My first internship. Wow. Um, really intense but, um, really rewarding and challenging and, and yeah, I just loved it. So I did, uh, two internships at White Sands. Um, then I, at Wistiff. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, they do a lot of really amazing work out there. Um, and my brother actually still works there. He, uh, he works as a chemist at White Sands. He's doing some great work as well. Um, my brother Neil and, um, uh, yeah, so, so I did those two tours and then, learned that I could do an internship in Houston at the neutral buoyancy laboratory, uh, basically scuba diving with astronauts, helping them to train on how to build the space station. And I thought that would just be an awesome opportunity. So I applied for that. Um, I had to wait a while, uh, to yeah, I got, got put on the waiting list, but that's kind of what brought me out to Houston initially. Um, and so I got to do that it was, it was amazing. I got to help train astronauts build, um uh, the space station. You know, they, they train in this giant pool that they call the, the NBL.
0: I'm, I'm guessing uh, coming from Las Cruces, you probably didn't have a ton of scuba diving experience.
1: No, no, <laughs> I, I applied for that position and then got my scuba certification afterwards. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, it's kind of the perfect on the job training uh, because certainly uh, we don't do a whole lot of scuba diving around here.
1: No, but they did offer it as a class at NMSU. It was like a you know a PE class, and so that was where I got my cert, and we did a, a dive in Bomeray, Texas, which is actually pretty nice. The visibility there was was really good. Uh, so it's a cool place to go uh, scuba side, scuba diving. So it's out there in, in West Texas.
0: Maybe we should kind of address the wow factor of the Artemis II project. Can you explain that to me in, like, we discussed previously in the absolute simplest terms possible like i'm not a rocket scientist which i'm not
1: right yeah so i think um you know we had this uh so thanks to rebecca she wrote an amazing article on some work that we did recently that will ultimately uh, that supports the artemis program and um r- what we're trying to do here is uh we're developing technology that can extract oxygen from the lunar soil So lunar soil is roughly 45% oxygen and people have been experimenting with different ways to get the oxygen out for, for decades. But, you know, usually they're small scale laboratory experiments. Go ahead.
0: I don't have a sense of like, what is, uh, earth soils, oxygen,
1: right? Right. So there, there is a pretty big difference between what's on the moon and what's on earth. Um, what the, the stuff, the material on the lunar surface is typically referred to as regolith and that's, um, it's basically doesn't have, you know, any, it's, it's different from earth soil because it doesn't have any carbon or anything that, you know, would support, uh, life, you know, typically when we, when we talk about soil on earth, it's like, what you use in a garden, you have to have nutrients and minerals and things like that. The lunar, uh, regolith doesn't really have those things. Uh, it's basically just, it's more like sand. It's mostly silicon glass. Um, but yeah, it's very different. It's a, uh, but there's still a lot of resources there. Uh, so, you know, what we do at least in this lab where I'm working now is we, we do what's called in situ resource utilization. So we look at, Know, what type of resources are available on both the Moon and Mars that we can use to help create a sustained human presence on both of those places? So, right now our focus is on the Moon. We've done some work with uh, Mars resources as well, uh, but right now our focus is on um, just tr- trying to get the oxygen out of the out of the lunar soil. So, so what we call lunar soil is really it represents just like a a a, a fraction of you know what we call that regolith it's like the it's basically the sort of loose on un- unconsolidated material you can kind of just scoop up not rocks so that's that's what we call lunar soil but it but it's it, it there's a lot of oxygen in it and so um there's a lot of different ways it's like just chemical reactions that we can use to, to take the oxygen out and we've demonstrated some of those methods uh in the laboratory over time um i started working here in 2005 and, uh, you know, we've been doing this type of work on and off, depending on whether the focus is moon or Mars. Um, but I think what makes the recent tests uh, more significant is that we we were able to demonstrate a method for extracting oxygen in a space environment. So we basically demonstrate, we, we did this, we demonstrated the process in a vacuum chamber. And um, that's much more difficult to do than just getting something to work on the bench. So the, you know, NASA has what they call technology readiness levels. That's kind of a scale of, uh, you know, when a technology is actually ready to go to space. So something that kind of works in the bench uh, using just like hot, the commercial off the shelf parts is what they would call a TRL 4. If you demonstrate something in a vacuum, then that gets you to a a much higher TRL that is, it's, it's.
0: Yeah, you're, you're not doing it on the earth's surface. Well, it's, I mean, you are, but, uh, but uh, you're, you're eliminating all of those factors,
1: right? It's, it's more relevant in that uh, with, with this type of test specifically, the significance was, you know, space doesn't have any air, right? It's just, it's complete vacuum. So the way that heat, it tends the things tend to overheat when there's no air to cool things off. And um, the process that we're demonstrating involves like some really high temperatures and really, and a lot of power. And so making sure that we can manage all of that power and heat without the system itself, just because we're actually melting the lunar soil. And in this case, we're using simulated lunar soil. It's not, didn't actually come from the moon, but you know, we have the recipe and we can reproduce it. So that's what we use for our testing here in the lab. Uh, but we're actually melting it so that, you know, that's a, uh, Temperatures of like eighteen hundred degrees Celsius, and we're using about two kilowatts of of laser energy to make this work. So testing this in an area where you don't have any cooling is an important step to show that we can make it work on the lunar surface. Uh, it's it's very challenging. So this is really the first time that we've that anybody's really done this this type of thing. Um, in this environment, to show that you know this technology is actually ready to go to the lunar surface. So this was, you know, it's just the first step. We still we still have a lot of work to do, but um, it was definitely a significant one uh, because we got we got past a big hurdle basically to show that this technology is ready for, for for space.
0: And what might this mean for the future of space exploration?
1: Well, the goal of the Artemis program is to have a permanent human presence on the lunar surface, uh, which, which makes sense. It's the next logical step in space exploration, right? We've, uh, you know, for the past 20 years, there hasn't been a day where there was not a person in space, you know, thanks to the to international space station, we've had a continuous human presence in space for, for 20 years, but that's basically in what we call low earth orbit where it's, um, we're just circling the earth. And so, you know, what we're trying to do now is to push that permanent humid presence further out so that we're, we're better prepared to explore further. Um, And the next logical place to do that is, is the lunar surface because it's, it's, it's close. So, you know, ultimately we want to have people on Mars as well, living on Mars. Uh, But um, uh, it's a lot easier to show that we can do that on the moon first uh, because it's closer, it's easier to access. Um, So, Basically, in order to have a permanent human presence that far out, you you can't take everything with you, right? It's just uh, um, it's just like you know when you go on a road trip, you know you you don't bring all your gas with you, right? Uh, or anything. I mean, there's there's things that you get along the way, and you know if you if you look at uh, the way people settled uh, areas in the past, you know the successful colonies, you know, are in the were the colonies that could basically figure out how to live off the land. So it, it, so oxygen is fundamental. You know, it's uh, it, this is what will allow us to, to really be on the uh, lunar surface for a sustained duration. And it's not just for breathing. The main thing or the significance of, of oxygen in space is that you need it as fuel. So, or at least as propellant. So, you know, a rocket, basically it, it needs both fuel and oxidizer, you, know, you need oxygen for anything to burn uh, that's true on earth right so if uh, you know here we sure. just have oxygen in the atmosphere everywhere so you can you can burn fuel just from being in the air but when you get to space you have to bring the oxygen with you in order for anything to burn including rocket fuel so you have to bring all of that oxygen if you want to get off of the moon or get off of Mars. Um, and it's it's a lot like you you need you literally need tons of oxygen just way, to be able way to Way more off the
0: surface. than you would think
1: well yes it, yeah it 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 literally takes you know tons of fuel and so you know and that and, and so you would have to land in order to basically in order to get off the moon or or Mars um, you need to bring a lot of fuel and oxidizer you know propellants and uh, that's heavy and it it costs a lot of money to um deliver. Uh, I think the estimate I heard was like every kilogram of mass that you land on the lunar surface is roughly a million dollars. Wow! So if you're talking about landing tons of fuel on the lunar surface every time that we take a trip there, that's going to cost a lot of money. But if you can get the oxygen out from the ground right. and you don't have to ship it all there, you know, then then that really makes it sustainable to actually have people there you know, more frequently and and more sustainably because you're not having to spend billions of dollars a trip.
0: Right. Constantly flying oxygen and fuel to the moon surface. Right. I Exactly. I want (laughs) to, against my better judgment, uh, I do want to get a little bit deeper into the weeds about NASA's carbothermal reduction demonstration. The team conducted the test in conditions that are similar to those found on the moon, as you kind of explained, uh, by using a special spherical chamber with a 15-foot diameter called the dirty thermal vacuum chamber. And it's considered dirty because unclean samples can be tested inside. Can you Tell us what that means and why that's important.
1: Yes. So it's a unique facility. Um, And this was actually the first time that we'd really done a significant test in that that dirty thermal vacuum chamber. And so um, really the difference or what makes this unique is that NASA owns a lot of thermal vacuum chambers, but typically you want to keep those clean. Um, you, You... you know, you don't want to introduce a lot of contaminants uh, to these type of chambers if they're being used to qualify spaceflight hardware. But you know, now that we're wanting to test things that are going to be on the lunar surface, you know, there is a certain amount of just dust that yeah you we're going to have to deal with on the lunar surface. You're so not, we need chambers that can tolerate be able
0: to control that.
1: Right, right. So if we really want to do a good test that's applicable to the lunar surface, we need thermal vacuum chambers that are not you know that can tolerate a certain amount of dust, and in this case, you know, the test that we were doing involves extracting the oxygen uh, from the simulated soil, so we needed a chamber that could actually handle the dust, and so that's why we did this test, uh, the test in this specific chamber. Uh, There's not a lot of facilities, even in the world, that have that capability. Um, I think there's only you know, maybe two or three that I'm aware of. Uh, and this one was, was large enough to to fit the hardware that we wanted to test. Um, some of the other ones are a little too small. Only other chamber that I know of that's bigger is in South Korea. But then <laughs> that's kind of impractical to try and go fly to South Korea to do a test when we have <laughs> right. one here in Houston.
0: Right. The team used a high-power laser to simulate heat from a, a solar energy concentrator and melted the lunar soil simulant within a carbothermal reactor developed by NASA by Sierra Space Corps uh, out of Broomfield, Colorado. Can you tell us why that played an important role?
1: Yeah, so the, 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 the that core technology, the carbothermal reactor, was originally developed by a company called Orbitech. Uh, back in 2010 uh, we did a a field demonstration in 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 hawaii and uh, that company brought the reactor Um, i participated in that demonstration by pulling all the pieces together uh, doing a lot of the system engineering Um, now that company that developed the technology got acquired by sierra space and so we we did a lot of really good work back in 2010 to kind of demonstrate just the basic process in a in a filled environment which of course is you know Very different than the space environment, but the core team and the core technology was there. But after 2010, there was a period of about 10 years where moon was no longer the focus. So a lot of that work was kind of put on the shelf. Uh, But with the return to the moon, we um, we basically called all the, you know, the same folks that that developed this technology originally and said, hey, let's let's put a proposal together. Let's get a team together and let's take the next logical step and try to get this technology To work in a lunar environment, so that we can we can actually you know put put this on the moon, yeah. So that team gets the credit for for the core technology. One of the benefits, or one of the nice things about this particular process, is that it has ties to Mars ISRU as well. So um, a lot of the core technology that we would use to get oxygen from the lunar soil is same technology that we would use on Mars to make Uh, propellants using the co2 that's in the atmosphere and the water that's in the ground
0: have you uh seen soil samples from mars that might provide some promise
1: well they haven't returned any actual soil samples from mars yet um i know there's a mars sample return mission in the works but but uh but there's a lot of data yes there's there's tons of data from from the Uh, different orbiters that we've sent uh, that show that there's, you know, literally tons of water on Mars and it's pretty, pretty much everywhere. Like you can, you can't really see it. It's uh, it's basically absorbed into the, into the Martian regolith. But um, if you were to just basically scoop some of that up and throw it into a heated vessel, you would get water. So there's, there's, you know, literally tons of water. And there's also actually like chunks of just pure Frozen water underneath the surface that we've been able to absorb, uh, observe from, uh, from orbit as well.
0: And water and, is and made on the moon. From, that's one of the big reasons. Go ahead. Water is made from, in part, oxygen. So we've got it right. there.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So that's the other big resource is, uh, you know, both on the moon and Mars, we know there's a lot of water. And that's actually one of the reasons why, you know, in the Artemis program they're setting up the Artemis base towards the the poles of the moon uh, is because we know that there's water there and anywhere that there's water, you can make rocket fuel because the basic components are there, you know, water is H uh, two O. So if you split it uh, into hydrogen and oxygen gas, that's rocket fuel right there. That's what fueled the space shuttle, hydrogen and oxygen. So anywhere that there's water, you can make rocket fuel.
0: When <laughs> you said you've, you've been at NASA for, Almost 20 years. When did you realize we might be onto something like this might be a thing? Um, I think the, uh, that this concept of in
1: situ resource utilization, that was actually something I learned about when I was doing an internship at the jet propulsion laboratory. So that I spent the summer working there at, at JPL. Yes. And I was doing motion architecture studies and I was, you know, just doing a lot of literature search on different types of technologies that we could put on this conceptual mission that we're working on and I learned about this experiment uh, that could convert the CO2 atmosphere on Mars into oxygen and it um, was the first time I had really heard of anybody actually working on that technology and so that was that was where I thought well, this is, this is significant this is, you know, this is at the time I thought that's the future this is what we need to be doing And um, when I graduated from college, uh, I had the opportunity to work with the group that was developing that technology, and so that's really what brought me to Houston was you know just to be able to work on this type of technology. And so I I knew pretty much all the way back then. Now the thing is, you know, for 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 those twenty years, it's 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 one of those things where it's exciting technology. I think it's absolutely necessary for the future, but because it's sort of a long term thing, you know, we we. We have to navigate like (laughs) we have to kind of constantly be, you know, uh, making sure that we're we're making progress on this when there's a lot of other sort of higher priority things that are right in front of us. So the pace of of the work has been more of a marathon than a sprint. But over that time, I think we've been able to make significant progress. um, And I think we're ready to uh, uh, take the next steps.
0: Aaron, this is. Part of the game-changing development program uh, within the Science Technology Mission uh, Directorate, and game-changing is a kind of strong language. What's game-changing about this mission?
1: Well, I, I think it kind of just goes back to the economics that I was talking about before. When you have the ability to use materials. That are on the lunar surface, especially for oxygen production, which we know we'll need lots of that to just to be able to um, leave the surface. Then it, uh, it 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 makes going back to the moon frequently and sustainably more practical, right? It's it won't be so expensive. So it's kind of enabling, I think, for that long term future where we can have people really not just visiting the moon, but 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 living there. Having a permanent human presence.
0: Looking beyond the Artemis II mission specifically, can you explain to our listeners why the overall Artemis mission is important?
1: Yeah, I think it it it, it goes back to the sustained aspect of it. Um, you know, there's a lot that we know about the moon now that we didn't know back in the Apollo days. So, I mean, one of the biggest Differences is, is, we know that there's water on the moon. We didn't know that back in the 60s, uh, but now we know that, you know, there's water in the permanently shadowed craters, basically places where the, uh, that don't see sunlight, um, haven't for a billion years, so they're or billions of years, so that they're cold enough to keep uh, the, the water ice stable, even though there's no atmosphere. So that's a, that's a big resource, and it, and it's also, there's also a lot of science. I think by studying the ice that's there, we can learn a lot about well, there's just a lot of uh, science, scientific questions that can be answered by studying uh, the, the, those those locations. But uh, also, I think it's just the next logical step in expanding that permanent human presence that in space that we've established with the space station, pushing it further out. So, you know, the difference right. with, between Artemis and Apollo is that we're going back to stay. It's it's not, uh, you know, it's not something where we're going to... Um, you just plant the flag and a few times and, and come back. It's, it's, it's more of a sustained effort not to diminish anything that, that happened in Apollo. I and mean, that was a, obviously an amazing historic, um, achievement, but, but, uh, Artemis does need to be different from Apollo. And that's, that's, that's the difference Is that we're, we're going back to set up a, a, you know, sustained human presence on the lunar surface this time.
0: Aaron, you live this life every day and, To you, I think this doesn't sound crazy, but uh, to me, who has lived every day on Earth, not thinking much about this, it sounds like it sounds kind (laughs) of crazy. Yeah, I mean, uh,
1: yeah, sometimes I do have to kind of pinch myself that this is actually my job. we're,
0: We're really doing this. And it's not that crazy. Through Artemis missions, uh, NASA hopes to land the first woman and the first person of color on the surface of the moon, paving the way for long-term lunar presence and serving as a stepping stone for astronauts, as you mentioned, on our way to Mars. Can you speak to the historical relevance of the mission
1: you know that's not really my area of expertise i mean that's kind of <laughs> high level nasa stuff <laughs> or, or or
0: historians
1: maybe right yeah uh, that's kind of out of my wheelhouse but I, I i think it's exciting i mean i i, I think um I, I think the significance of saying hey we're, we're opening up space exploration to everybody we want to make sure that it's it's about inspiring, right? And that's a big part of what we do. We show that uh the human spirit is still alive and well, right? Um we're we're so that's how pushing you pushing the boundaries.
0: That's how you got involved just by exactly. being inspired. Exactly. And and that could happen to um a, a young girl or a person of color um who might be in high school, in Las Cruces right now. Exactly. Is there anything you'd like to add, Aaron, that we haven't talked about today?
1: I think just, uh, you know, I, I I do feel very fortunate, um, you know, to, to to be able to do this type of work and, and and to work for NASA. And I think I had a lot of help along the way in Las Cruces. And so I think, you know, that path is there for anybody that, that is willing to, you know, that's, 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 willing to, 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 to put in the work, um, and kind of push themselves, you know, to see how far they can go.
0: Literally Um, all of the resources were right here in Las Cruces uh, from, from middle school to high school to NMSU.
1: Yes, that's correct. And, um, yeah, I just also want to just give a lot of credit to my to my family, too, of course, because I'm sure they're going to listen to this. And uh, I know I've told them this before, but I definitely wouldn't have been able to, you know, do the types of things that I'm doing without their support. Uh, and my brothers as well. You know, they're both successful uh, in their own right. And um, I think um, we always support each other. And and, uh, and that's always been um I think a source of strength for my for, for for is is just my family, so definitely want to give them credit.
0: I'll give a shout out to uh, Lorraine and Randy.
1: yes, that's my mom and dad. Happy 50th <laughs> anniversary. They're gonna be celebrating fifty years Holy this summer cow. So I'm looking forward to come home for that.
0: well, that's great. that's that's fantastic. Aaron, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us.
1: Yeah, I definitely appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much.
0: It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about some of the biggest stories of the week. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A special thanks goes out to Aaron Paz for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in las cruces at www.lcsun-news.com for all of us at the sun news thank you for the privilege of your time